Jessica Bantam's book called Design for Identity couldn't come at a better time. Intended for designers, the concepts in this book are relevant to decision makers at every level because it offers lenses with which to check your perception and see the other realities around you. Diversity is essential when working with complexity because it provides the many lenses that we need to understand the situation, to really see a picture. Without that, decision makers don't make good decisions, particularly when working with complex issues. Jessica is a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, DEIB, practitioner and workplace strategist, whose mission is to enable individuals to take immediate actions that create meaningful outcomes for historically excluded people. And I would also add, Jessica, when I've read through your book, not just historically excluded people, but also misunderstood people as well, or misjudged or misinterpreted. There's a whole thing around difference that I think your book embraces. Those are the reasons why I think this book is important and the ideas that we're going to talk about today. It's a powerful step in working with very diverse points of view. Anyone that thinks that one point of view is going to be the sticky one is... <laughs> misguided, I would say, to be gentle. Secondly, working with complex issues needs diversity and safe places where identity can be expressed and supported as part of larger solutions. That's my take on it. But Jessica, what does it mean to design for identity? And why is this important? And why now? To design for identity means to design with respect for the depth and breadth of humanity. It means that in the process of designing, we are conscious of the identities of the people we're designing for, and we are conscious of interacting with them and getting their feedback directly so that we can, number one, identify what is culturally relevant to them, what is meaningful to them, and then also to make sure that as designers, our interpretation of that still resonates with them and respects them and brings their voices in accurately into whatever we are designing. It's especially important now because design organizations, like many other organizations, especially since the summer of 2020, have been making these proclamations about, we support DEI, we stand with so-and-so this week, we stand with so-and-so next week, but they're not backing it up with any meaningful change. I wouldn't say that there is a lack of intention or desire to change or to know more about what to do. But there is a lack of guidance, I would say, in terms of what to do. I intentionally framed in my book, the, the subtitle is actually how to design authentically for a diverse world. It literally is meant to be a how to start bringing in identity into the dialogue that happens during the design process. Number one, to bring in the voice of the customers themselves, but also to make space for the identities of the designers. And for us to share from our lived experience in the process as well, to make sure that we are, once again, deliberately connecting with our customers, but also then authentically representing what is meaningful to them. Change takes courage. And there's a bit of a shortage of that, given the amount of fear that's been spread in the last couple of years in particular. I think it's a real opportunity to source courage again. Because if we're going to create a better world, we're going to have to step up and not just dance around the words, but apply them to the situations where they'll really, truly benefit. So I appreciate that intro. There's past, present, and future. If we look at it linearly, how different is the approach you're taking from what's been done in the past to what needs to go happen going forward? 
So that's the thing is I was framing what I call the design for identity blueprint, which spells out what this evolved design process looks like. It's really not a huge departure from what we know. That is intentional. We're not shifting what design necessarily looks like. We are just incorporating additional points into the dialogue to make sure that we're doing it in a way that respects and honors people and their identities. Essentially, what the blueprint looks like is it intentionally identifies different phases throughout the design process where we should be interacting directly with customers. It spells out what we should be asking them. And it also spells out at those same points what we should be asking ourselves as a design team. For one example, at the beginning, the very initial phases of the design process, typically we do reach out to customers. There might be some meetings, some conversations. Usually our focus is very functional requirements. (laughs) But those opportunities can also be expanded to ask questions like, what about your identity would you like to see represented in the final product? That's just adding another question there. Right. It's only a few questions to add at each phase. But in particular, that phase, that would also be a point where as a design team, you're having that same conversations. What perspectives do we need to seek out to make sure that we are having these conversations in a respectful way, that we're bringing the people into the room who will um, the customers will be able to relate to the people who have maybe a shared lived experience so they can pick up on the unspoken signals that are happening, the cultural cues that are actually really relevant in setting that final solution apart from everything else and really making it resonate with the customers. That's essentially what the Design for Identity Blueprint is. It's adding this layer, this lens of cultural competence on top of what we already do. Now, which I think is brilliant because for doing these kinds of shifts, big shifts, people don't have the strength for them or the vision, offering just a slight little tweak can make it much more accessible to anybody listening to this program. I think that's really invaluable. In the intro, you mentioned the EI, the words are there. What we're doing is switching from a monocultural view to one that's equipped for the diversity that goes with life, that goes with the world we live in, both biodiversity, cultural diversity, human diversity. Given that fear of loss powers executive decisions, What's to lose from pretending perfection over taking action and stepping into this challenge? In any context where I'm talking about DEIB, I tend to veer away from the business case conversation because to me, this is so much bigger than business. But I also understand that that is an element in all of this, especially when I'm proposing these concepts that I think a whole industry should adopt. I do have a whole chapter dedicated to spelling out what the benefits are for organizations to act with cultural competence, and then also what the risks are of not acting with cultural competence. Organizations risk falling behind in terms of their customer base, in terms of their future talent pools. If they don't stay tapped into what's happening around other people's identities, what's relevant to people, what's going to draw future employees to your company, what's going to keep your existing employees there, What's going to resonate with your customer base as they're evolving? We can't leave culture and identity out of that conversation because it's essentially leaving money on the table. If you are really tuned into those things, you can frame your recruiting approaches. You can reframe how you retain people, how you pay them, how you gauge their performance so that they can see, oh, my identity doesn't factor into how well and how far I'm going to go in this company. 
because I know as an organization, they are acknowledging, yes, people are different, but we also embrace that. That's not going to be a barrier here for your success. Organizations need to realize this isn't just a thing about doing what's good or doing what's trendy. Our demographics are shifting. There are things that are happening culturally. Our culture is constantly shifting. As a business imperative, organizations need to be on top of that and they need to be in tune with it. So they keep up. One design organization, if you're thinking, ah, we're good, we can keep doing things the same way we've always done them. Okay, you may say that in terms of DEI because you're uncomfortable with it, but you wouldn't say that in terms of your products becoming more complex or incorporating technology into your solutions. So why is it different when it comes to DEI? It can't be. Another risk you run is that if you ignore it and your competitor isn't, (laughs) your competitor is drawing in all these people who suddenly feel seen and valued and can relate to a whole new market for them, they're going to be the ones that succeed. You're unnecessarily putting yourself at risk by avoiding this. (laughs) Complacency is really the deadliest decision that anybody can make. This is such a dynamic environment. It's very volatile. There's a bunch of forces that are running in the background, like climate change. The question mark more recently, when I was looking at the Antarctic ice shelf about to drop and the sea levels would go up instantly, and that could happen within the next five years. That's a big thing. Resiliency doesn't come from keeping everything the same. It comes from engaging people from diverse views because people have different ideas It really comes from a wider spectrum of engagement. Definitely. And it's interesting, too, even from that standpoint, bringing up sustainability. My design background mostly encompasses interior design, although I've had exposure to graphic design, product design, and other fields. But in interior design, sustainability has become a hot topic. It's become something where, oh, we need to have people certified in this or that understand this or that are in-house experts. So you did it for sustainability. You can do it for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. When I even look at those things side by side, not to say one is more impactful or more meaningful necessarily than the other, but to me, it's also interesting how we can sit as a society, as an industry, talk about, oh, well, we need to save these trees. In the meantime, you are disrespecting and limiting the advancement of the person who works right next to you. Those are things that are happening immediately right now in your presence versus things that we're predicting that will be catastrophic in the future. So it, which does come back down to, I think, this idea of the discomfort that people have with dealing with the DEI and dealing with actual people issues, but we can't avoid them. It's happening around us every day. When we talk about complexity, these issues are happening now. They're not waiting. They're not on a time box. And so the reality is being uncomfortable is a good sign. It says you're stepping into your leadership. Now, do you want to stretch too far? No, you might snap and break and that wouldn't be good. But even if you just give it that little push into that zone where I don't feel very comfortable about this, good. You're in the leadership zone at this point. You're not sitting around directing or pointing or telling somebody what to do. You're actually stretching your capabilities. And I think that's what this is all about. It's about capability building. If we don't have those capabilities, sudden disruption takes place and everybody's running around with their hair on fire, but they don't have the skills to work with disruption as a positive force, as a force that we can work with. If I position what you're doing in the context of resilience, organizational resilience and global regeneration, it's very much around that stretch. It's very much around being uncomfortable. Definitely. And I think leadership requires that today. 
that just like you're saying, that level of leaning into the discomfort. And I think also in doing that, leaders can model a level of vulnerability that invites other people into the conversation too. I do talk about the mindset, environment, and behavior shifts that need to happen to implement the Design for Identity Blueprint in my book. Part of that is about being able to say, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Um, Because to me, that opens the doors for other people to say either, whew, I don't either, let's figure this out. Or I have an answer. I haven't necessarily felt comfortable sharing it before, but if you're putting it on the table like that, let me throw this out there and let's see what comes of it. It opens the door for so much more promising conversation. I think takes a little burden off of leaders. I would hope that they would see that possibility in this approach. They don't have to have all the answers. They just have to make the space where the answers can be brought to the table. And ask the big questions. Ask the really big questions that nobody has the answer to because that's what's engaging. Let's face it. That's what makes you step forward and say, I want to be a part of this. I want to understand this. I want to engage my full capabilities in this conversation, this question, in this action, all those levels. We talked about the concepts. We've talked about the principles. How does what you've presented in this conversation in the book help these companies, help these leaders walk the talk? We just alluded to that, but I'm going to go a little deeper if I may. It's so easy to pretend a leader knows everything there is to know because that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be the boss. It's a lot of confusion there. How can the book help those people that are thinking, okay, I don't want to carry this burden of knowing it all with me anymore. I want to share it. One of the points I do reiterate throughout the book is that to do any work, to take any effort around diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging does not require you to know everything about people. (laughs) You don't have to have the full understanding of uh, someone from a different racial, ethnic, religious, socioeconomic background. You have to have the curiosity to want to learn more. And you also have to have the empathy to want to understand and then to believe other narratives. Those are the most critical things. Some leaders hesitate about stepping into this because they feel like I don't know enough to be able to speak to it. That's okay. No one does. There's a whole profession of DEI practitioners. I know there's no one person who understands all of this. I learn every day, every conversation that I have and conversations I even lead. But I love that about doing this work. I love finding out about new experiences and new perspectives. That's one of the shifts that I hope can happen in taking on this different um, concept and viewpoint around difference is that you can see it as an opportunity to learn and grow. It doesn't have to feel like the pressure to have all the answers, the pressure to be the one that has to figure it all out. I also fold in concepts of design thinking into my approaches around this work too, because there has to be this openness to try things. If they don't work, you can pivot it's okay. (laughs) That flexibility definitely has to be there because what we're talking about when we are endeavoring into anything around DEIB is we're talking about cultural transformation. We've mentioned change several times, even so far in this conversation. A change involving people (laughs) is going to require some flexibility. We know the pushback that we get when we try to do anything from relocate an office to implement a new system where you have to go from Excel to this new app. We get pushback on that. Do you think they're not going to get pushback when it comes to asking people to show up differently for each other? But we have to have that same flexibility we'd be willing to have in a product rollout. We need to have that same perspective in dealing with us asking people to interact with each other differently, 
to be more open to hearing and learning from each other, to be more open to saying, okay, I realize now that behavior was sending signals that exclude those people. Maybe I can tweak that a little bit because that wasn't my intention. And I don't want to be that person. There's just so many different things to factor into this that break down the old paradigm of what leadership looks like, of having to have all the answers, being the one that knows it all, being the one who all of it's on your shoulders. This work is for all of us to do, but it is definitely necessary for leaders to be willing to model the behaviors to make it all happen. We're talking about trying something on. One thing I sometimes hear in conversation is, yeah, I'm going to try this, but I know it's not going to work. This is the place where anybody, doesn't matter what level they are, has to be extremely aware of what beliefs they're bringing into the situation. Because if you bring in an attitude, and this goes back to the mentality (laughs) uh, discussion in the book, if you bring the attitude that I'm going to try this, but I'm pretty sure it's going to fail, you're basically orchestrating failure and you're wasting your time plus everybody else's time. I think this is another opportunity for leaders to be present with the intention they're bringing into it and just what frame they're using. Is the outcome focus going to be, it's not going to work, or is the outcome focus I'm going to watch and see what emergent. How do I bring the skills of observing what shows up? Do you really have to detach yourself from that predictable pattern and path that most organizations are solidly addicted to because they've been engineered that way? There's a whole bunch of challenges in this beautiful process that enable leaders to get a whole lot better at leading, not just organizations, but their lives as well. Definitely. Definitely. And we have to give ourselves some grace, right? So it's something new, anything that's new, regardless of whether you're a leader or anyone else in an organization, any situation, you have to give yourself a little grace. We have to recognize this is something I'm trying. I am branching out into this. This is new territory. I say, give yourself some grace. I make sure to iterate too, when I talk about what this DEIB work looks like for any organization is that ultimately it comes down to the individuals. This is the most personal work anyone will have to do at work. (laughs) Because any conversation around identity forces us to look at our own. And it forces us to look at all the things that have framed why we look at certain people a certain way. Why do I have these biases against people of X race or people of X age group, et cetera? And we have to really think about that. And it can be hard because a lot of times we may realize things about ourselves that we're not necessarily proud of. (laughs) But that can't be the barrier to us moving past that. A lot of this is challenging for us individually. That's why I say we need to give ourselves grace. But the leaders, the ones who are going to be impactful, are the ones who are willing to work past that, work through it. Honestly, to think of the outcomes of people beyond yourself (laughs) that need to be factored into this. Most leaders genuinely care about their organization. They care about the people they work with and they want to see them succeed. So they just have to be willing to lean into this enough to say, I can take myself out of this. Even if I need to process some things over here, (laughs) I can remove myself enough to move the organization forward. I just don't want to be the bottleneck. I've seen several instances in DEI projects where one leader We got to one point in the process where a mirror was held up to themselves. (laughs) And I really think that they just didn't like what they saw. So it was shut down for the whole organization. And Mm. that's just not fair. The simplest way to say it. It's not fair, but it's also the weakest thing anybody could do in the sense that there's huge opportunity here to step up and step in 
and the opposite took place. You might regret that, which is a good thing because you could come back and say, we need to resurrect this initiative. Oops, just admit the mistake and move forward. This is where the mindfulness comes in or paying attention to what's going on, observing yourself, all these micro skills that are so relevant in a complex environment where there's these interactions happening all the time. That's so important. It's a really big part of it. I was really intrigued by the words design, dialogue, and cultural competence. (laughs) If you could break those out for us all, I'd appreciate it. Dialogue comes before the competence. Doesn't matter whether it's in design or in cultural understanding and empathy. What are those about? One of the things that drew me to this overall concept in general was thinking about what the dialogue is in the design process period. In a lot of ways, it is about form, function, and not people. So there's a lot of talk about basic requirements, things that I guess anybody could potentially perceive, things that we think we see as issues that we can address in a new design solution. Mm -hmm. In that dialogue, that's where the has been missing from the conversation the identity of the customers and what's important to them, um, as well as the space for designers to share from their own identity, their own perspectives, to be able to insert that into a conversation. I point to a couple of design gone wrong (laughs) case studies in my book. One of them was about the Spanish Postal Service. It was the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and they, they decided to launch a campaign, a new series of stamps called Equality Stamps. They were meant to bring attention to the need for equality. The stamps were designed to represent different skin tones, which I thought automatically off the bat, that's an interesting concept. (laughs) But then what they did was they assigned different monetary values to each of those stamps. The lighter the tone, the more expensive, the higher value the stamp. In instances like that, I wonder... What was the dialogue among the team when this was happening, right? Did anybody say, hey, you guys, (laughs) do you know what signal this is sending? Mm -hmm. Did somebody think it and they didn't feel psychologically safe in that environment to bring it up? Uh, Did someone mention it and somebody else was like, yeah, whatever, it's not that important. You're being sensitive. Did it not occur to anybody at all? So it was never part of the dialogue. Those are those moments where I really wonder what was at play and why didn't anyone catch this? Mm. And I know that it could have been some junior designer who got the project. They just did what they were told, right? Where the original concept was even first drafted and presented to everybody. But even at that level, that person, if they didn't create it, it wouldn't have gotten out. It wouldn't have gone through a whole process to begin with. They should have been empowered to say, we might want to think twice about this. Or shouldn't we have a broader conversation about this before we move forward? The designer is ground zero. Because if we didn't create it, there would be nothing to talk about. There would be nothing to debate. There would be nothing to, ultimately, in this case, unfortunately, anything to have to apologize away (laughs) and try to recoup your good image from. That's the dialogue I'm talking about. And the importance of bringing up identity in those conversations. It doesn't even have to be um, an instance where it's related to your specific identity. Even if something occurs to you that's like, I don't think that's quite right, or we should look into this further, or maybe we should get other perspectives on this project. There's power in that too. But the idea is that there's not intentional 
action being taken to make sure that these these types of conversations can happen. One of the things that's coming immediately to mind for me is that the design world is full of nuance. It's full of little signals that people aren't even aware of. They wouldn't necessarily notice. You wouldn't necessarily associate, but you do subconsciously. It's happening whether you're conscious of it or not. Subconsciously, it's registering. And so that's the importance of that dialogue. It's also the importance of the reflection and the importance of having somebody come in and say, what triggers are you seeing here? What do you associate? To try and bring that up to the level where you can actually address what that subliminal message is. Organizations send out subliminal messages all the time. They send them out through how they reward taking risk or voice. If you step forward, do you automatically get slammed down? What are the context for voices to come forward? What are the reinforcers and what are the inhibitors? Those are all subtle signals that for the most part don't get a lot of attention because everybody's too busy running and running and running on a task orientation. Do you think that what you've got in here can actually shift that? Because if so, there's a lot more people that are in organizations who are, say, highly sensitive, who could actually function instead of just trying to survive. Right. That's the idea, is that this would become a matter of just inserting questions here and there (laughs) for that to become a norm to even raise the issue. Because there is power just in saying, let's take a quick pause and really, really think about that. That is my intention. I have a whole chapter on designing with cultural competence as activism. But even if things don't get to that level of shifting whole organizations, whole industries, and all of our practices, if we could just start inserting a couple of these questions, it could go a long way in just opening the door just for us to have that awareness. And what it also to me is that moment of pause where you step back and get out of the one perspective you're applying to this particular design or whatever it is, and you're saying, how many other ways are there to see it? And that's where diversity comes in. That's the beauty of it. It's to say, I can see this, or I can see that. But you're going to have a different take on what you're looking at because of that beautiful part of being human, which is we don't all think the same, we don't all see the same, and therefore we want to benefit from that. Definitely. And it's funny too, because one of the concepts I learned as a designer is to design from every angle physically, if you're designing a physical thing, design from every angle. If you're designing a space, you can't leave out uh, the floor because you're thinking about the ceiling. You can't leave out the lighting because you're thinking about the color. You have to think of everything. And to me, this is like just a continuation of these design concepts, just in a different context. We don't want to leave anything critical out. If we do leave identity out, we are leaving out a major component. It's also making sure that we're not just bringing in our interpretation of what someone's identity is. Just like you mentioned, the nuance and the cues and all of the unspoken things. That's why it's important to have the direct communication with customers to make sure that even if you think you found something like, oh, I think this is a cool symbol that's going to be really meaningful to this group. It could be something that's very sacred to them that does not belong on a wall or does not belong in a physical space. That's where direct communication is really pivotal. I just finished watching the earthquake documentary on Netflix. One of the groups of people involved made a cultural mistake. Mm. It's ladder of inference. It just kept building and escalating. But it spoke to understanding the cultural code that the people who live there were living by. And then somebody comes in from a different culture and sees it completely differently makes a decision. It's the wrong one because they didn't actually understand the cultural code and didn't really take that in. So I think this is such an important part of the process of of being curious 
I mean, intellectual curiosity, what the heck's going on here? Who are you? And what can I learn from you? It's such an important stance to take and an exciting one as well, because it's so rich. And especially as designers, that's why I hope we would lean into that, just because this new knowledge gives us that much more to work with. What we create, it gives us new tools, it gives us new variables to factor into these creations that we do this to build. I was intentional about expressing it from that standpoint as well. This is welcoming designers into a whole new space to help us become better designers, to become better creators, and to solve problems in more creative ways, because ultimately we are problem solvers. And I included the beginning designers of process, designers of people that are running change agent process, change processes in an organization. You have to be extremely mindful of the impact this is going to have on people and how people get involved and engaged. It's a very rich and dynamic opportunity to be so aware of these complexities. It's extremely exciting, especially what you've offered, which is principles and lenses. I'm going to bridge to a question that's really current for me right now, because I'm looking at worldviews. I'm looking at the consciousness of organizations. I'm looking at network science and how networks form in organizations. What's the worldview that goes with them and all of that. We're also looking at organizations having to make major changes to how their workplace is designed. So they can be more designed around people getting things done. In thinking about that, How can the principles and lenses that you describe in the book be incorporated into a change process? The whole scale change process is one that's been used for system-wide change, putting the system in the room and then through participation, through a set of series of experiences, coming out with a better system. Is there a way these principles and lenses could be used to guide some of that process. It goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, which needs guidance. Where would we put that guidance? Where are the best places to situate it? Is it in the decisions that individual executives make? Is it in the process that these managers who are responsible for change initiatives are designing? Is it something you hand off to an outsider who's coming in and doing a design process and you say, look, you've got to follow these principles. What do you think is the practical application and implementation of these principles in those design experiences? I would say there are many different, many aspects of the process to look at, even starting from the very beginning, asking who's involved with the development of the process. What voices are even being brought to the discussion up front about what does this process look like? <laughs> Who will it impact? Having those kind of discussions up front, I think that's very critical and it's often something that's left out of typical business conversations, quite honestly, anything about any type of strategy. But there needs to be deliberate thought given to what perspectives do we need in the room to even formulate this process and determine if it is the right one or if it's going to be the most impactful Then it also helps to have those asking that same question and make sure you have that diversity in the process too, when you're talking about what outcomes are we looking to achieve through this process, specifically who will be impacted by them and how. That's another opportunity where it's valuable to have diverse perspectives because they can say, oh, well, from my experience, this, the result is going to be X for me. It may be Y and Z for everybody else, but for me, it's going to be X. So I want to make sure that we're accounting for that in what this looks like and how we're approaching it. It's as much about who's involved in the process as it is in actually executing the process itself Hmm. and being mindful of that. That makes an awful lot of sense. What changes do you wish to see in the world when companies apply the principles in design for identity? (laughs) 
for one thing, I hope that customers are heard and they feel seen and they feel valued. I use an example of a community center being built in the chapter about the design for identity blueprint. In that example, I would want people in that community to say, wow, this designer listened to us. We got to be part of the process. And the ways that they chose, the ways that they implemented into the design to represent us are things that really are meaningful to me. It's not their interpretation of us. It's not a stereotypical representation of who we are. It is literally things that resonate with me. And I feel like I was not only asked to come on board for the process, but I was respected and valued. To me, that is one of the most important things because so much around DEIB work can be very performative. A lot about design thinking and what we call human-centered design can be very performative because ultimately designers try to put their spin on what the customer is telling them. The outcome could be that it's something that is either disrespectful, it erases the people's identity ultimately, or it is just an extremely wrong (laughs) interpretation of it. And that's when you do harm. Another outcome I would hope would be that designers of diverse backgrounds feel like we are actually valued in an organization and that our perspectives mean something. I profile a designer, an interior designer in my book who shared that depending on the nature of the project, she knew she was just being brought in as a person of color to show the clients, hey, you serve a diverse community. We have a diverse team. Yay, look at this. And then never talk about identity ever again. So it is my hope that we, as people with lived experience, we feel like we are seen, we feel like our perspectives are valued, and we're not just being brought into organizations to say, hey, look, now we got our diversity numbers up. And that there is that recognition of the value that we bring, and the value we also bring in terms of our interaction and our ability to connect with people who are like us. That opens up a whole new range of information that design firms could get from customers. It opens up a whole new potential network that employees of color could tap organizations into. If I work for an organization, I feel seen there, I feel valued there, and I have a whole network of people who look like me, I would be more likely to refer them to my organization. Leaders need to be mindful of factors like that as well. Organizations grow through referrals. And especially if you want to grow with people who are a good culture fit or people whose values align with with your organization, that means that your existing staff, your existing workforce, they are your best potential ambassadors. The better you treat them, the more you make them feel seen and included, the more likely they'll be to bring in people who are like them that you may not have access to otherwise. Those are just a couple of the things. Ultimately, I hope as an industry, we're all willing to lean into this and to learn from each other. There will be missteps. There will be people who are afraid to start. There will be great success stories. I just hope that there's a dialogue so that all of that can be shared because this isn't about one particular design organization being like, okay, we're going to be the lead on this. We need to set the example for each other. We need to share information with each other. This needs to be something that we collectively evolve around doing. I love that summation because it's really where we are in the world today, it's an understanding that in order for us to tackle these large issues, we're going to need to work together. And in order to work together, we need a different skill set. We need an expanded skill set, one that doesn't rely on having all the right answers or being the only smart person in the room or any of that. It involves being curious. It involves 
sharing ideas, being open to new ways and different ways of thinking, trying them on, seeing it's such an extremely exciting opportunity. Thank you for coming on the program and talking about Designing for Identity. The book is coming out April 4th. People can pre-order it now. Yes, it's available at jessicabantam.com. And there's information there for Design for Identity. Okay, I'll put it in the show notes. Anything you want to add, Jessica, to close off our conversation today? No, I just, I want to thank you for having me. I love being able to talk about the topics in the book from so many different angles. So I appreciate the perspectives that you bring through your podcast to topics like this. And I'm glad that we are able to mesh and bring these concepts into what I feel like was a very enlightening and fulfilling conversation. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Jessica. Looking forward to seeing it out there and seeing the change that it brings on because it's much needed. Diversity is fundamental when working with complex issues in natural systems because it is the source of resiliency. In human social systems, it's fundamental to being able to come up with solutions that work for a wider spectrum of people. My name is Donna Jones. Please share this program if you enjoyed it. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you for joining me. See you on the next episode.